Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Welcome to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers series. I'm Terry Carter, a senior writer for the Journal. And today I'll be speaking with Paul Lippi, who is a major change agent for the way law is practiced. Just four years out of Harvard Law School, Paul left an old line law firm in 1988 to be general counsel for a high-tech client. Moving through other jobs and in his own entrepreneurship over the years, he's leveraged insight into how innovative companies are run so he could shape the relationship between law departments and their outside lawyers. In his speaking, writing, consulting, and other ventures, Paul is helping law departments use metrics, knowledge management, and artificial intelligence to create legal departments as sophisticated and innovative as the best parts of their own companies. Paul developed Legal OnRamp in 2007, a members-only collaborative platform that is a kind of open-source legal knowledge repository slash laboratory to help corporate legal departments avoid reinventing the wheel. He sold the business to Elevate Services last year and is on their advisory board, and he still is hands-on in the crusade. He says that some law firms get it and some don't. You might guess how he thinks that's going to play out. These changing ways are the focus of his column called The New Normal for the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels blog. Some lawyers probably think he's from outer space, and Paul might well respond, I mean you no harm. He wants to help them survive and thrive in the transformation. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Terry. I I definitely mean you no harm, so I appreciate that (laughs) warm introduction. Well, I gather that you were in the United Kingdom last week. What were you doing? Sure. Well, it's interesting. So in many respects, the UK has been ahead of the U.S., And that's partly attributable to one individual, a guy named Richard Susskind, who has written a number of books and is, you know, widely viewed as a leading futurist. Uh, And so he has a conference in Scotland every year, which has the benefit of being one of the more beautiful places I've ever been to. So I was up at his conference and there are probably six or eight speakers, different law firms, Pinsent Masons, Berwyn, uh, BLP presenting and others. And then I was in London and uh, the large law firms in London, the so-called magic circle firms, again, tend to be somewhat ahead of the U.S. firms in terms of their degree of innovativeness and, in many respects, their thoughtful use of uh, technology. Well, what was going on at the event with Richard Susskind? Well, this was actually the 25th anniversary of the conference. So uh, part of it was just a kind of a nice retrospective and look back of uh, what's happened over the years. And, um, you know, law I think more than most fields is kind of, um, what can you call it? It's obviously a self-governing profession. I think it's a self-aware profession and is one that's always in, in, at some level in conversation with itself. And so, you know, to some degree, the traditional groups, the the bar associations uh, have been laggards in understanding the changing world of clients and, and therefore the changing world of lawyers. So new institutions like this conference, have kind of emerged to be conveners and thought leaders around what's changing. So, uh, you know, there's, I don't know, in any year, there's probably 100 or 150 different events where people come together and kind of talk about them. But as uh, I forget who it was, some sportscaster, you know, referred to the Rose Bowl as the granddaddy of them all. So this little conference in Scotland may be the 
the granddaddy of, of kind of legal innovation conferences. Well, in a few minutes, we'll probably get to some specific areas where it might be good to mention what's new in these conferences. But on, a, on another thing, I understand that when you were in London, you chatted with a lawyer that you'd met two years ago. But six months after that, he left his law firm after many years um, and became a company's general counsel. So I'm curious, did you, did you notice any difference in him? Yeah, well, as you mentioned in the nice intro, so I was relatively early in my, uh, you know, among my peers and my cohort in going in-house. So the setting I was in was kind of both big and small. So it was a startup company. I was on my own, so I had to figure out things, but we had a large investment from Panasonic, from Matsushita. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand kind of the systems thinking of the what was then the large Japanese companies that were viewed as kind of leaders in manufacturing and quality. And so, you know, really pretty much for the last 30 years, every couple of months, somebody I knew would say, hey, I'm going in-house or I'm thinking about going in-house. Or sometimes I would hire them or, you know, sometimes I would just talk to people. And there's always this kind of uh, a now I get it moment when you go in-house and you realize, you know, lawyers aren't really the center of things. People are more focused on outcomes, not inputs. It's not that they're not risk averse or whatever, but they're, you know, they're focused. They kind of want to get to the point more quickly. Uh, and everybody kind of goes through that, that um, you know, now I get it moment uh, that I've seen. Anyway, this one particular fellow who's a very, very smart and delightful guy had been in a you know, very posh law firm for a long, long time. And so when I met him in the law firm, you know, he seemed like your kind of classic law firm guy and, and had that worldview. And uh, seeing him in a new setting, uh, which was a large financial institution, he was talking like uh, like he'd been a Silicon Valley general counsel since the 90s. You know, he was very much uh, focused on outcomes and, you know, things like emotional intelligence and process and metrics and, and even uh, in passing referred to law firms as supply chain, which, uh, you know, would be heretical language uh, to use around most law firms, but, you know, they're in some sense, law firms uh, are uh, they are judged in the same way that other people who provide goods and services to enterprises are judged. So uh, it was, I would say, the most extreme example I've seen of kind of the that transition, and you know, to me, sort of indicative of kind of how how this evolution is unfolding and you know the likely direction of travel. You know, another thing having to do with the United Kingdom. Would you explain the differences in the regulatory structures in the UK and the US and what maybe needs to be done to bridge any gaps for global law practices? Yeah, well, there, there's sort of, I guess, for purposes of your question, there's probably two differences in the structures. One is formal, the other is informal. So I can't tell you exactly the evolution of this, but under both EU rules and anti-competition rules, there emerged probably six or eight years ago, a kind of a a regulatory reform initiative around, I think, many professions in the UK, but certainly law. And that emerged as the so-called ABS, or Alternative Business Structure Rules, which allowed for the creation of law firms that were not only owned by lawyers. So as you know, in the US, the rule has been for some time, I don't know, a century, maybe a little less, that law firms have to be owned by lawyers because the, the view is somehow if there's non-lawyer ownership, then it would be, you know, more financially motivated and less ethically motivated. And and I think as recently as three years ago, the ABA looked at those rules and chose not to to do much about them. So, the emergence of the ABS structure, 
which was very heavily hyped three or four years ago when it first came out, is a significant difference. You know, I think so far it hasn't really made much difference. Uh, there was a notion of law firms would go public, and, and I, don't, I never thought that was much of a thing, um, and uh, or that this would you know be the end of ethics or whatever. So uh, I just, in general, uh, it's good to have heterogeneous regulatory regimes because then you can see which one works. And so, so far, I think the answer is, you know, the ABS structure has been okay and hasn't actually made that big a difference. And certainly the world hasn't come to an end. So personally, I'm a proponent of that in the U.S., although, you know, there seems like there's widespread opposition. And then the second is is kind of a, a you might call it a self-regulatory structure, but the the large UK law firms are generally still operating according to a lockstep compensation system, which by and large the US firms went away from. And that has lots of implications for the management of the firms. And one implication is that the UK firms have to enforce more of an up or out uh, or just out policy. So like the accounting firms or McKinsey, they push partners out in their mid to late 50s. Uh, which, of course, is not what goes on in the U.S. Partners continue to be active and typically high earning until their late 60s or early 70s sometimes. But the lockstep compensation system means, and I don't know if there's a wrinkle in the tax rules or just sort of the culture, but the firms tend to have more capacity to invest. And so they'll spend more money on technology or process improvements that are hoped to pay off in the future but won't necessarily pay off in the current year, whereas in the U.S., the firms, I think, are all a little bit afraid that if they somehow make an investment, that will impact someone's current comp, and then another firm will come along and hire them away, and and that's a you know that's a dangerous place to be. So, in many respects, that informal difference in the structure is much more impactful than the formal difference around the ABS rules. But the two of them combine to make for a slightly more investment-oriented. The legal culture in the UK than the US. Okay. To get a bit more granular or just in one aspect, I've heard you speak of and, and write about transparency and the law needs to be more transparent. What exactly do you mean by that? Sure. Well, I guess hopefully most of what I've been saying and doing, more importantly, is more rooted on an understanding of what's going on in the world and the world of clients than the world of lawyers per se. And so, you know, the world of clients is about greater complexity, obviously greater digitization, and I would say, broadly speaking, greater transparency. So in a digital world, it's easier to know more. There's more information, but it is easier to know it. And if you look at, you know, the great legal scandals and controversies of the last 10 years, they've generally been rooted in in the ability to find out something that you know otherwise wouldn't have been found out in the world before. So coming to grips with a world of greater transparency is, I think, at the heart of the challenge for uh, for all professions and particularly for law. And then specifically, you know, all professions, and it's always helpful to analogize between law and medicine, although they're they're different in many ways, but all professions are rooted in, you know, what would be called information asymmetry, right? The professional knows more than the, their client. Or their patient, but as you see in medicine, increasingly patients come in, you know, informed about things. They may be misinformed, and they can't operate on themselves or prescribe drugs. But they're, the so-called informed patient is a big part of medicine. In law, it's more about lawyers being comfortable operating in a world of greater transparency, which I think 
we're not yet totally there, but you know that's the adaptation that I think we're in the process of making, and and um, we'll continue that to make over the next decade or two. Let's move to talk a bit about technology. There's a lot of concern of late that artificial intelligence might lead to robots that will destroy humankind. But for now, are machines going to replace lawyers? Is AI going to transform the profession? Yeah, so I, I, I say in joking, but somewhat true, I think I'm the only lawyer anybody's ever met who actually put four kids through expensive colleges selling artificial intelligence software. But that was that was my old company called Synopsis, and the software was used by engineers, not by lawyers. And I, you know, I asked a uh, fellow there probably more than 20 years ago, he's now a professor at Berkeley in the CS department. I said, well, is this stuff artificial intelligence? And he said, no, it's only artificial intelligence when you don't know how it works. Once it works, it's just <laughs> software, right? So, so artificial intelligence is kind of this grab bag term that we use to describe all things that technology might be in the future that we don't like. And of course, the other, you know, the other great hashtag line is, uh, I forget who it was, said, you know, don't tell me about artificial intelligence. I'm a lot more worried about natural stupidity. So, I mean, I think we should be concerned about the impact of all technologies in society. And what we're calling AI certainly has implications in terms of jobs and inequality and lots of things we should care about. So we should definitely be thoughtful about it, just like we're thoughtful about everything. I think specifically in law, you know, I think AI, what we're calling AI is probably going to be a catalyst to change a number of the ways we work. But I think we're a long, long way from displacing lawyer reasoning with machine reasoning, in part because lawyer reasoning is is pretty unstructured. It's pretty informal. And so, you know, if the machine says one case was wrongly decided and another case was rightly decided, you know, and it was decided five to four, how do you know if the machine's any better than the human? But again, back to the, the T word, I think what technology will do is allow us to have things be more transparent. So if I've got 50,000 contracts and they affect a number of aspects of my business and I don't really know what they say today, then you know there are certainly uh, technologies that will help me uh, unpack the meaning of those contracts. And then probably when those technologies don't work, we'll call them artificial intelligence. And when they work, we'll just call them software. All right. How about law schools? Are law schools part of the problem, part of the solution, or of negligible impact on old and new ways of practicing law? Yeah, I mean, I think the law schools have put themselves, you know, broadly speaking, on the wrong side of history, not through any malevolence, but just kind of a evolution. So if you think about the original law school model, which was obviously, you know, pioneered at Harvard, was based on this Langdellian notion of, you know, law was like other sciences of the time of the mid 19th century, where the intellectual effort was around classification or taxonomy, right? So it was like zoology or botany. And so if you studied law, there was, law kind of was natural and innate, and you studied it to kind of understand the structures. And then, you know, starting in the 1920s, 1930s, led by Yale, you had kind of the advent of legal realism, and the legal realism said, ah, you know, this cup is pretty subjective. It depends on what the judge had for breakfast or whatever. And so that that sort of swept away the intellectual model of law, but we kind of stayed with that notion of of Langdellian formalism, even as we kind of gave up on formalism. And then in the last generation or two, law schools have become, you know, 
more uh, academic, um, in some sense, kind of graduate schools of political philosophy, and there are places for faculty members to go to pursue their interests, you know, in, in a kind of a realist or post-realist view. But unlike medical schools, where to a large extent, the faculty see patients, and if they say, I think XYZ will work, they actually have to apply XYZ and see if it works. Law schools remain a domain uh, that largely the intellectual work is geared to people in other law schools. So there's less empiricism, and if there's less empiricism, then by definition, you know, nobody ever finds out if they're wrong, and people don't learn as quickly they're not as naturally innovative. So if you look at most professional schools, business school to some significant degree, certainly engineering school, medical school, they're much more engaged with the profession and I think provide, you know, frankly, more value to the profession. Law schools have chosen to be more disengaged. You know, that wasn't a crazy decision in 1970-something, whenever it was made. But in hindsight, it's looking like a suboptimal strategy so I think you'll see the law schools start to move towards a, a re-engagement model, a more empirical model. And you see, you know, there's probably at least 20 schools across the country that have some significant initiatives uh, in that direction. And, and I think you'll see those grow and grow. Do you have an example of one? Yeah, well, the Stanford, they've got the Codex initiative and then Margaret Hagen. Dan Katz at Chicago Kent is probably now the leading academic kind of intellectual in the U.S., sort of the U.S. version of Richard Susskind. Uh, Bill Henderson at Indiana has done a ton. There's obviously a ton of stuff going out at Harvard, at the Center for the Legal Profession. Georgetown's got Tanita Rostein and, and Iron Tech. Northwestern, the dean there is probably, you know, maybe the happeningest dean in the country, Dan Rodriguez. Colorado under Phil Weiser was doing a lot of stuff in the Flatirons and Denver University. So there's, you know, there's a bunch of things. I mean, because in part the deans or somebody at the school can see the analogous things that are going on in other schools, other professional schools on their campus, and in part because historically, you know, if I were the dean of the University of Colorado Law School, uh, in the world that was, certainly I played a leading role in the bar of the state of Colorado, and that's that's what I cared about. I didn't care as much about you know, how many citations my papers got from other academics. So, you know, people do what surrounds them and what they're incented to do, what they're comfortable doing. And so I think we've seen the high watermark of the uh, kind of academicization of the law school. And now we'll see the law schools move more towards a you know a medical school model. You know, you may have, have addressed this already in some of what you've said, um, but could you tell us what were the hot topics this year at Richard Susskind's conference? Well, in some ways, the most interesting aspect of Susskind's conference was the conference that preceded it. So uh, in the week before in Las Vegas, there was a conference called CLOC, the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, which is a bunch of Silicon Valley companies led by Cisco and Google and NetApp and Yahoo and some other companies, Facebook, that you've heard of and you haven't heard of, where the, the companies have created this operations function to make law, you know, essentially work more like the rest of the business, which is to say more data-driven, more innovative, more process-oriented, more, more technology-enabled. And while Susskind's group, you know, they meet in this room, there's only room for like 22 people, so it's always the same kind of size group and many of the same people. The clock group 
didn't even exist a couple, three years ago. Last year, they had a couple of hundred people in San Francisco. And this year, my understanding is they had 1,100 people in Las Vegas. So you see now this explosive growth in uh, what they would call the operationalization of law. I might call it the new normalization or the digitalization. But, you know, I think we're all talking about kind of the same thing. And so that that kind of, you know, if Susskind's conference is kind of the Voyager probe, you know, going out beyond the solar system, then that was a, a ping back uh, from a very large uh, star system saying, hey, you know, we hear you and we're moving in this direction. In terms of the conference itself, you know, obviously a lot of talk about AI and different use cases and, um, you know, just kind of a recognition uh, if you take, you know, the, the thing about laws, these changes have been anticipated for a while, right? So you can kind of go, well, we said this was going to happen a while ago. It hasn't happened. Therefore, nothing's going to happen. Or you can say, well, you know, things take a little while. We kind of were in a self-aware conversation. These things seem to be happening. Here's six examples of things that have happened in the last four months. You know, will 10 things happen in the next four months? We'll see. Stay tuned. Paul, could you tell us just a bit more about the sale of legal on-ramp to Elevate Services last year? Sure. Uh, so Elevate is a much larger company. The chairman was somebody I'd known for a long time, very good guy named Liam Brown. And they were able, were and are able to offer a broader range of services to both legal departments and law firms. And I think that's key uh, because as we've talked about, this change is, you know, it's happening in different places in different times. And so the ability to meet the customer where they are, uh, I think, is key. For OnRamp, we were a little more narrowly focused. And so having a broader offering is a, is a good thing. And my final question. Plenty of lawyers are resistant to change, and they might argue that for good reason the law itself is too. But growing numbers of lawyers are concerned with the issues you've been discussing. What should they do? Well, every, I mean, you know, people act in their, their perceived self-interest and what they're comfortable doing, whatever. So I don't know that lawyers are more or less change-oriented than anybody else. The law itself obviously should be consistent and and understood. And so the law shouldn't be changing every two seconds, obviously. But, you know, lawyers, they perform many different functions. As market actors selling services, they should adapt to the market as, as officers of the court with an ethical duty. They should keep themselves in a position where they can perform that ethical duty you know, as people who are proprietors or owners of a firm, there's a tension between kind of the long-term interests of the firm and the short-term interests of the of the partners and everybody involved in the law firm's remarks on that. So, you know, I don't, uh, I don't think there's any the notion that people kind of trot out that lawyers are change-resistant. I don't think that means much. I mean, we've been in, there was a period from say, you know, 1992 to. 2007, where there was a boom in demand for law driven by complexity and digitalization, globalization. And so you didn't have to do much differently to thrive as a market participant. So, you know, that's uh, understandable. And then people say, oh, gee, that's the way it should be, or naturally is, or, you know, even I'm entitled to that. You know, that tends to be not the most thoughtful kind of thinking. So I think lawyers are perfectly capable of adapting. You know, the one thing that you can point to is unlike most people who participate in markets, lawyers get to set the rules for their markets, right? I mean, uh, many professionals do to some degree, but lawyers more than most. Certainly people who sell software don't get to set the rules or people who sell cars or 
build houses don't get to set all the rules that govern the nature of competition in their field. So that that quirk, which you know, frankly, most people outside law don't find especially, they're not saying, oh, that totally makes sense that lawyers get to make rules for themselves. So that quirk allows lawyers to sort of say they're they're naturally change resistant. Uh, I don't find that especially informative. I just think they're you know they're like anybody else. They'll change when they're comfortable and they understand it's in their interest and they have the means to do it. And and otherwise, you know, they'd be disinclined to change. All very interesting. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think the good news is most lawyers do want to do the best job they can. And most lawyers do have a sense of ethical duty. So, you know, I don't think there's a lot of lawyers who run around today and say, I don't need to know how to use electricity, right? You know, mm-hmm. as recently as 15 years ago, there might have been any number of lawyers who'd say, I don't need to know how to use email or a browser or a computer. I don't think many people say that today, right? So, so as technologies change, people who want to practice at the top of their license and do a good job will just figure out how to use those technologies to do the best job they can, right? And that's, you can call that change or you can call that consistent, right? That's the precedent that lawyers adopt new tools that help them practice at the top of their license. So I think we'll continue to see that and it will be perceived as accelerating over the next couple of years. But I probably would have said that five years ago too, and it probably hasn't accelerated quite as quickly as I would have thought. So we'll see. I think many of us in many areas of life find ourselves being overwhelmed by inevitability, and we do it. (laughs) Well, it's only inevitable in hindsight. So, yeah, everybody's a genius in hindsight, right? So, but you know, it's uh, the way I I describe it is kind of the Starbucks and Salt Lake City phenomenon, right? So, at some point in 1992 or whenever, you know, Starbucks was booming in Seattle and wasn't in Salt Lake City. And so, some people would look at that and say, well, you know, Salt Lake City's totally different from Seattle. Starbucks will never come here. And other people would say, well, you know, in many respects, Salt Lake City's a lot like Seattle and Starbucks is likely to come here. And I think my understanding is Starbucks is there. So a lot of it comes down to kind of what have you experienced and what is your metaphor? And uh, again, what are you, you know, what are you comfortable that you can master? But again, I don't think if you can find me any lawyers that can say, I don't need to know about electricity, then then I'm sure you'll you can equally well find lawyers who say I don't need to understand the internet or artificial intelligence or electric pencil sharpeners. But in the end, you kind of adapt to the world around you. I want to thank you again for visiting with us, Paul. Sure. Well, it's great that you guys are doing this and helping everybody understand the opportunity to advance the profession. Oh, and by the way, could you give some contact information? Sure. It's Paul P A U L dot Lippy L I P P E at Elevate Services, like it sounds, dot com. Thanks. And I want to thank our listeners, too. Come back for another ABA Journal Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, Please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.